0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Tuesday, September 4th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton gets a cool reception in Beijing.
1: Xinhua News Agency, the official Chinese news agency, called her a sneaky troublemaker.
0: We'll find out why, and later a photographer who lost his legs and an arm in Afghanistan on what it took to get back to work.
2: Within minutes of the explosion, I remember thinking to myself, I could still see, I still have my right hand in my mind, I was still a photographer. But the actual battle to be up taking photographs, it's been a, it's been a long journey.
0: That story ahead on The World.
3: MRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery, Kenneth Brana stars as brooding Swedish cop Inspector Kurt Wallander. He has a new relationship, a new sense of possibility, and three chilling new cases with devastating effects. Don't miss a new season of Wallander, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. <laughs>
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. If the 20th century was America's century, many say the 21st century will be China's. It's too early to make that call, of course, but there is no mistaking the tension between Washington and Beijing, especially over who calls the shots in the Asia-Pacific region. U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is in Beijing today to press China over its many territorial disputes in the South and East China Seas. She traveled from Indonesia, where she called on Asian nations to present a unified front against China. And she proposed a binding code of conduct to prevent the risk of confrontation. The world's Mary Kay Magstead is in Beijing. Give us a little bit of background on this first, Mary Kay. How serious are the territorial disputes that Hillary Clinton is referring to?
1: These are long-standing disputes where six different nations or entities claim sovereignty over some part of the South China Sea. Now, recently, in the last few years, China has been increasingly aggressive in asserting its claims and saying these are ancient waters, ancient islands that China has always laid claim to. There isn't actually historical documentation to back this up. And in fact, certain claimants like for instance the philippines say this is patently ridiculous you're claiming waters that are much closer to our shores than they are
0: to yours the bottom line for both parties in this particular case say the philippines and china is what i mean is it is it giving up fishing rights is it is it worried just about uh, border lines
1: so all the claimants to the south china sea are interested in fishing rights they're interested in rights of passage and they're interested in rights to explore for oil and gas in the South China Sea. And particularly in recent years, it's been found that there is a fair bit of oil and gas, particularly off the Philippines island of Palawan.
0: So, so these and, are real issues behind this. It's not just kind of tit for tat.
1: These are real issues. But the Philippines, Vietnam and other claimants say these waters, these islands are much closer to us than they are to China. And by the standards of the international law of the sea, they should be ours, not China's. Now, China says, we can resolve this. We can talk country to country on a bilateral basis, and we'll come to some sort of an agreement. What Hillary Rodham Clinton said today was Southeast Asian countries who have claims to the South China Sea should stand together and insist on a multilateral discussion with China, to agree to a code of conduct in how to act within the South China Sea and how to share resources. China's really not interested in doing that. In fact, it's actively opposed to a multilateral approach. So the Chinese have been striking out against Hillary. Uh, Xinhua News Agency, the official Chinese news agency, called her a sneaky troublemaker uh, and uh, said that these sorts of interventions are just a continuation of U.S. hegemony. Of course, some of China's neighbors would say that it's China that's trying to be hegemonic in the the region.
0: Why is the United States involved at all?
1: Well, the United States has a defense treaty with the Philippines. So if it were to come to blows with China, the U.S. could very well be involved. Also, the U.S. has an active interest in making sure that the sea lanes remain open and that U.S. ships can pass freely. A lot of international trade passes through the South China Sea. And also, the U.S. wants to make clear to China that it's not going quietly away from being a Pacific power. It intends to continue to be an Asian power and a Pacific power for a long time to come. The Chinese view is that China is rising and the U.S. is falling, and the U.S. should just step aside and accept this reality gracefully. The United States has made it clear in the last two, three years especially uh, that that's really not how they see it, um, that in fact, the U.S. will stay in Asia for a long time to come.
0: Mary Kay, you've um, been watching United States politics and how it affects China and vice versa for quite some time now. Do you feel as though part of what the Secretary of State is saying now is election posturing?
1: No, not at all. I think this is part of U.S. diplomacy toward China. It's part of a long-term policy toward China. It's in the interest of the United States that issues of sovereignty in the South China Sea be settled in a multilateral and peaceful way. Um, The US does not want to go to war with China. It does not want war in East Asia that it might be drawn into. So, this, I believe, is a sincere sentiment that's being expressed while also sending the message to China that the United States is and will continue to be an Asia-Pacific player, and that China cannot ignore it or expect that it can sort of kick it aside and do what it would like.
0: Speaking to us from Beijing, the world's Mary Kay Magstead. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. U.S. policy in Asia won't be the topic of any big speeches this week at the Democratic National Convention. But President Obama has made the region a big U.S. foreign policy priority. The world's Jason Margolis explores what that means if the president is reelected.
4: Last November, President Obama laid out a new vision for American foreign policy, a shift in focus toward Asia. Here's the president speaking to the Australian Parliament in Canberra.
5: With most of the world's nuclear power and some half of humanity, Asia will largely define whether the century ahead will be marked by conflict or cooperation, needless suffering or human progress. As president... I have therefore made a deliberate and strategic decision. As a Pacific nation, the United States will play a larger and long-term role in shaping this region and its future."
4: The president spoke of stronger military ties and economic partnerships in the Asia-Pacific. He said the U.S. will promote civil societies and the advancement of the rights of all people in places like Burma. He talked about combating piracy and extremism in Indonesia. The president, as well as administration officials, have taken to referring to this new strategy as a, quote, pivot toward Asia. Bhaskar Chakravorty, a senior associate dean at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, says this pivot was unavoidable.
6: A pivot towards Asia is centered on the 800-pound or the 1,600-pound gorilla in the room, which is China. And the question about China has to do with how do we both compete with and collaborate with and uh, help and get help from China all at the same time.
4: Chakravarty says that'll be complicated.
6: So what that involves is having a presence in Asia so that I can do business with China, I can keep close tabs on what China is up to, and then also make friends with uh, other parties, other countries in Asia that potentially could become part of China's orbit or want to get away from China's orbit, in which case they would uh, rush uh, to embrace the U.S.
4: And Chakravorty says carrying out this strategy could be easier for a second-term president. This pivot toward Asia is becoming possible as the U.S. winds down its commitments in Iraq and Afghanistan and also as U.S. influence in parts of the Middle East is on the wane. But can a second-term Obama administration pull off its new Asia policy? Aaron Friedberg, a professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University, says it's a matter of resources.
7: Obviously, there are going to be significant uh, cuts in the defense budget. So it's going to be tough for the United States to spend more money on maintaining its own forces in in East Asia. I think we're going to try, but... The administration may not have the resources to do as much as some people think that it should.
4: So while Friedberg says the Asian pivot is a good idea in theory.
7: Thus far, it doesn't have much substance. Most of what the administration has done has been talk. And talk's important, but it has to be backed up with actions.
4: Friedberg is also an Asia-Pacific advisor to Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney. Friedberg emphasized, however, he was not speaking for the Romney campaign during our interview. Still, I asked him how a Romney administration might differ in terms of its policy toward Asia.
7: Just to back up one step, I, if you look back over the last 20 years, so since the end of the Cold War, both Republican and Democratic administrations, starting with George H.W. Bush and then down through the Obama administration, have pursued a mixed strategy towards China of engagement on the one hand in economic, certainly diplomatic engagement, and so on. And on the other hand, efforts to maintain a balance of power, even as China grows stronger. So I think uh, there is likely to be more continuity than change, whoever is elected in 2012.
4: Friedberg did add it's his sense that a President Romney would perhaps go a little further strengthening the U.S. position in the region. And a Romney administration might be tougher toward China on economic issues. But Bhaskar Chakravorty at Tufts, who identifies himself as an Obama supporter, thinks a President Romney would be far more constrained in Asia.
6: Mitt Romney, if he does get elected, he'll be elected on the single issue of jobs back home.
4: Of course, any future strategy in Asia for any president is subject to the real world cooperating. After all, unforeseen events have a way of intruding on grand policy plans, no matter what they are. Or who is making them? For The World, I'm Jason Margolis.
0: A Colombian woman known as the Queen of Cocaine was murdered yesterday. Griselda Blanco was a prominent drug trafficker back in the 1970s. Later on, she served almost 20 years in jail in the United States. Blanco had kept a low profile since she returned to Colombia in 2004. Among other things, Blanco pioneered the use of human mules to carry cocaine to the United States. And at one point, her operation is said to have shipped more than 3,000 pounds of cocaine a month to the U.S. From Bogota, Colombia, John Otis reports.
5: Griselda Blanco was shot dead by motorcycle gunmen on Monday outside a butcher shop in the Colombian city of
8: Medellin.
5: Local radio said Blanco received two shots in the head. She was 69. Blanco was a pioneer in her field. She's thought to have been Colombia's first female drug lord. She also pioneered a smuggling route between Medellin and Miami that later became the principal corridor for Pablo Escobar and his Medellin cartel. Blanco's criminal organization is thought to have shipped a ton and a half of cocaine to the United States every month. Blanco was also deadly, As she rose up the ranks she ordered the killings of between 40 and 250 people according to Colombian media reports. Among them was her first husband whom she reportedly ambushed with a pistol that she drew from her ostrich skin boots. Not surprisingly one of her nicknames was the Black Widow. But Blanco never became a household name because she was arrested in 1984 and extradited to the United States. That helped clear the way for the rise of Escobar. Blanco served 20 years in prison on drug trafficking and homicide charges before returning to Colombia in 2004. She apparently led a low-profile life in Medellin. Fernando Quijano is the director of the Medellin-based Corporation for Peace and Development.
8: It's
9: the end of a long criminal history. She was elderly and it's her prison time in the United States.
5: Within Medellin's criminal underworld, grudges die hard, and Blanco was finally tracked down and killed. Ironically, she was murdered by a gunman aboard a motorcycle, a means of assassination that Blanco helped to invent 30 years ago. For the world, I'm John Otis in Bogota, Colombia.
0: A musical twist on the drug war coming up later on PRI.
3: The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Giles Dooley is a leading British photographer. He takes portraits, mostly in black and white. He's photographed former soldiers in Angola and refugees in Bangladesh and U.S. Army soldiers on patrol in Afghanistan. It was on that assignment last year in Afghanistan that he almost lost his life. Dooley lost both his legs and his left arm after he stepped on a landmine. After months of surgeries and rehabilitation, He's now back at work taking pictures, and his first assignment is to be one of the official photographers at the Paralympic Games. Giles Dooley is now in London. What is it like, Giles, to be on your first assignment uh, after all that rehab and all those surgeries?
2: I can't even start to explain how fantastic it feels. You know, from the day one, in fact, within minutes of the explosion, I remember thinking to myself, I could still see, I still have my right hand in my mind, I was still a photographer. But the actual battle to put that into uh, the practical elements of being able to walk and, and be up taking photographs. It's been a long journey. And so it was, it was a, a moment of victory, I guess, to be going into the Paralympics.
0: Tell us more, if you will, Giles, what happened in Afghanistan?
2: Yeah, I was embedded with um, a unit from the 101st Airborne. And we were out on patrol. Uh, we'd been, been ambushed a few days in a row. So we were going on a patrol to check out one of the compounds where we were ambushed from. It was actually a relatively quiet moment. We had surrounded the compound. Everything seemed okay there. The guys had just laid a perimeter around, and I turned to talk to one of them. And as I turned, I felt the click and uh, realized I'd stepped on an IED.
0: An improvised explosive device. That's right. And then what?
2: I never actually lost consciousness. I just remember a a huge, great white heat. I would describe it as a sensation of flying through the air. And then I landed with a thud on my side, and immediately it was clear that I'd lost my legs and my arm. I remember looking up and seeing... uh, Little bit of box shorts in the in the trees and thinking that wasn't a good sign. But I was lucky. I mean, the guys with me, one of one of the, the chief medics from Under First happened to be on the patrol, the sergeant on the patrol, they were fantastic. They got to me quick, got the tourniquets on, chatting to me, and, and really just were incredible and saved my life.
0: The um I, I mean, there's so much to talk about in terms of your own story, but can you maybe encapsulate for us what the road to recovery was like?
2: You know, it's been difficult in the sense of every time you think you're getting somewhere, another operation's needed or some other setback. I've had about 30 operations in the last 18 months, and uh, each one of them has come with its own with its own difficulties. When I came back to the UK, I succumbed to some severe infections, lung infections. My kidneys stopped working. I spent 45 days in intensive care. Two times my family was called in um, pretty much to say their, their goodbyes. I was uh, in a coma at that stage. My right hand was was pretty much uh, rebuilt, but nobody was sure if I'd be able to use it fully. So the idea of even living independently was out of question at the beginning.
0: So bring us where you are today. And you are now photographing the Paralympics. Who's your client?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm working for Otto Bock, who are the uh, technical partners at the Paralympics. Basically, they are a prosthetics company, and they're doing all the maintenance on limbs, wheelchairs, you name it; uh, they're, they're fixing it in their workshop there. So they approached me a few months ago about coming in. At that stage, I was still actually in my wheelchair and, and wasn't sure I'd be able to do it. But it—it it was great because it set me a goal, set me something that I was aiming to do.
0: And I wonder: so you're operating with a fully functioning right arm? Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And left arm—does it exist at all?
2: Yeah, the left arm is is actually through the elbow. So I have up until the elbow, and then I I, I wear a um, it's um, something. With my kind of own invention, which is just extends the arm slightly and has a has a rubber end, and that enables me to still focus a camera while I use my right hand to hold the camera and take the pictures.
0: Oh, so you use the you said the kind of rubber end to move, for instance, the aperture, and and can you set the the shutter speed with that?
2: Exactly. So I've managed to sort of learn and uh, and find ways to to operate it.
0: Wow.
2: I have to say, I mean, I I uh, you know when when you first. Um, have just one hand everything becomes you know a problem things that you never even really thought about become hard to do and you start to learn how to do different things one-handed but I've always found trying to use the camera was quite a problem but then I was watching one of the archers at the the Paralympics recently who has no arms and he's learned how to use one leg and what's left of, of one of his arms to do archery and you think well if somebody can do that I can learn to use a camera.
0: And there's something interesting that happened to you when you first arrived at the Paralympic Games um, and and you start off one of your stories. In fact, we can post this story at theworld.org. You start off your story telling us about it. You say, honestly, I think I'm in the right queue, the right line, you say. What was going on there?
2: (laughs) No, it was was funny because obviously I I turned at the Paralympic Games and uh, went into the, the queue blatantly marked for media and I was stood there and they have a lot of people helping out the games that are known as the games makers. And three of these games makers came over to me and going, sir, you're in in the wrong queue. I kept saying, no, I'm pretty sure this is the right queue. Oh, no, sir. No, sir, definitely not the right queue. One of them kind of looked down and sort of hinted towards my uh, prosthetic legs. So eventually I just gave up with their sort of constant sort of pestering that I was in the wrong queue and decided to go with them. And they put me in the queue, which was the official arrival point for athletes from around the world. So suddenly I found myself stood there with the Chinese Paralympic team with their arms around me, being given a flower, Walking in through there, uh, I think the biggest question in my mind at that point was what uh, event I should enter.
0: <laughs> and also, I mean, I imagine you're thinking, boy, um, this gives me great access to the Olympic Village that I otherwise might not have had.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, every, everywhere I've been, it's kind of one of those things in security; they don't really question what you're there to do. It's just everyone just assumes you're an athlete and lets you through. So, yeah, it's been uh, great access.
0: One of the photographs you've taken is a self-portrait. It's a pretty powerful image, and. And I'm going to read a little bit of what you wrote on your website about it. Maybe you can kind of complete the thought. You wrote, when I was still in intensive care, I had an idea in my head of a photo I wanted to take, a self-portrait. I could see it so clearly. It was in my head for months. I called the idea my broken statue image. Do you remember that thought? And can you continue it for us?
2: No, absolutely. And I I remember thinking of, of Greek statues and how, you know, some of the most beautiful statues known to man, actually have parts missing. And for me, it was about the inside person. The person I always was, was exactly the same. And although my body had been shattered, I was still me. And I wanted to reflect that in a photograph. And I think I wanted to be very um, clear as well about what my injuries were for people to see them, but also to see that I was exactly the same. You know, I find myself now looking around, and I now look at people maybe who have all their limbs missing, wondering how they would cope. But my own situation, I've learned to adjust. Really, my life is in many ways more more rewarding and more fulfilled than it was two years ago.
0: Well, our listeners can see a number of your photographs, Giles, uh, including that self-portrait that we mentioned online at theworld.org. Giles Dooley, a photographer at the Paralympics. He's also a triple amputee. Very nice to talk to you, Giles. No, thank you. A chance discovery along the southern coast of England inspires our geo-quiz today. It's a resort town that looks out on the English Channel. An eight-year-old boy was walking on a beach there when he spotted something called floating gold. The boy told the BBC about the discovery.
3: Uh, I found it at...
0: Um, Hengisbury Head. Hengisbury Head. And you were on the beach, were you?
8: Can you tell me where it was exactly? What It were was from? like in a patch of seaweed.
0: So what's the name of the resort town near Hengisbury Head Beach and what is floating gold? Stay tuned for the answer. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, how elephant poaching is fueling wars in Africa. Also, the smelly truth behind a substance known as floating gold.
10: It smells kind of like dung, but it's also kind of got kind of hints of tobacco and polished wood and old churches and all those kind of strong, musky, kind of animalic tones to it.
3: MRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. Africa's elephants are in a fight for their lives against ivory smugglers. There's been a sharp increase in the number of African elephants killed by poachers in recent years. The animals are slaughtered for their tusks, which are worth hundreds of dollars per pound on the black market. And some of those who are killing the elephants may be members of African armies that are funded by the United States. Jeffrey Gettleman writes about this in the New York Times. One of the things that's most unsettling, I think, about your story, Jeffrey, is the fact that you're talking here not about the poaching one might think of, of perhaps done by individuals. There is some of that, of course. But this is a full-on war with heavy weaponry, with assault rifles, and even military helicopters rounding up these elephants. Can you tell us how that kind of poaching has evolved in the past few years?
11: Yeah, it's pretty disturbing what's happening out there. What we've seen in the last couple of years is all these different armed groups that are jumping into this business. And it makes sense because a lot of these armed groups operate in these very remote, lawless areas that nobody's really watching, and they're also deep in the bush where elephants happen to live. And what I wrote about was the problem on two sides. We have the rebel side where some of the most notorious armed groups in Africa, like the Lord's Resistance Army the Shabab, the Janjaweed of Darfur, these guys are all killing elephants for profit because the profits are so high. And then on the other side, you have government militaries or members of government militaries that are participating in this.
0: Can you give us one example of the use of a military and military helicopters to kill elephants, to slaughter them in order to gain the tusks?
11: Sure. The most striking example that I came across was an allegation that the Ugandan military was using a helicopter, flying into Congo, and having a sharpshooter hanging out of the helicopter and shooting elephants in the head, and then landing the helicopter, chopping the tusks out of the elephants, loading them into the helicopter, and flying away. Now, of course, nobody saw this. It's pure circumstantial evidence, and the Ugandan military denies it. But the evidence is this. There was a group of elephants, 22, that were found dead in the middle of the savannah, several with bullet holes in the top of their head. Elephants don't usually lie down. There's no tall trees in this park. It would be almost impossible to shoot the elephants in the top of the head unless you were in the air. Around the same time these elephants were killed, a Ugandan military helicopter was seen flying in this area, and the Ugandans do not have permission to be in that area. So right now... Interpol, the International Police Network, is trying to match the DNA of those elephants that were killed to some ivory that was seized in Uganda.
0: Where do U.S. interests overlap with what's going on there? Is there any knowledge on the part of the Department of Defense or the Pentagon that U.S. money, U.S. funding that's going to, for instance, Uganda or the South Sudan military has been used for these kind of poaching operations?
11: I think that's a really good question. The American officials I spoke to publicly said they had no information that any of their allies was hunting elephants or poaching elephants. However, I did talk to other people inside the American government who said they believe that these African armies are poaching elephants. Is U.S. money helping them do that? That's not so clear. Maybe the U.S. gives a lot of money to Uganda for logistical support to hunt this Lord's Resistance Army. And the Ugandans may have used some of that money for fuel for the helicopter on that day if it indeed was them. There's a tension within the American government on this issue because Uganda is a very strong ally of the U.S. right now. They have thousands of peacekeepers in Somalia. They're considered one of the Pentagon's closest friends on the African continent. However, the U.S. is also committed to preserving species— They've put a lot of money into wildlife and conservation programs across Africa. So what do you do if one of these military allies that's very useful in many regards is also doing something that's totally reprehensible? It hasn't come to that point yet because the proof isn't there. But if it develops in that direction, I think it's going to be very interesting what happens.
0: You spoke with one U.S. official who said basically, make no mistake, there is one major market for this kind of ivory.
11: What is it? It's China. And this is the really interesting part. There are now something like 300 million people in China's middle class who have disposable income to buy ivory. And what we're talking about are are trinkets. That's part of the tragedy here is a lot of the ivory that's being sold in China is, you know, little things like bookmarks, cups, combs, earrings.
0: Ivory chopsticks, you say?
11: Yeah, chopsticks. I mean, just... Just little things that could easily be made out of plastic or wood. So, you know, it's really a supply and demand issue. And a lot of people that I spoke with spoke of this problem like the drug trade. As long as there is this insatiable appetite for ivory, it's going to be very difficult to stop the trade.
0: All right. Thank you very much for telling us about this. And uh, we're going to post your article at theworld.org. Jeffrey Gettleman, East Africa Bureau Chief for The New York Times. Thank you. Thank you. As we just heard, the main factor fueling the slaughter of Africa's elephants is the increasing number of people who want ivory and can afford to buy it. Some say it's the same story behind a host of the world's most pressing problems, from mass extinctions to global climate change. For a long time, we've heard warnings about population, that too many people on Earth are pushing the planet to the breaking point. And for just as long, such warnings have been generally ignored. Recently, one man decided to try a new venue to warn about the dangers of overpopulation, a stage in London. The world's Alex Gallifant went to see his one-man play to find out whether it was compelling theatre or just another rant.
9: Earth is home to millions of species, yet just one dominates it, us. Indeed, our cleverness, inventiveness and activities are now the driver's of every global problem we face. For any theater who stumbled into London's Royal Court Theatre recently, looking for a light summer comedy, well, this wasn't it. In fact, I believe the situation we're in right now could rightly be called an emergency, an unprecedented planetary emergency. And that's what I'm here to talk about. That's Stephen Emmett, the creator and star, if that's the right word, of a show called Ten Billion. The title refers to the number of humans expected to be crowded onto our planet by the middle of the century. I think we're on for at least 10 billion, and possibly considerably more. Emmett is the head of computational science at Microsoft. He's also a professor at Oxford University, so he likes experiments. And with his latest project, he's got a threefa An experiment in theatre, and an experiment in science, and an experiment in communication. 10 billion isn't so much a show as a lecture. But one presented in a theatre, there's theatrical lighting and some music. The challenge Emmett set himself was this Is it possible to give a talk that captures a whole boatload of scientific material, that synthesizes research from a range of different disciplines, but do it in just an hour, and in a language and form that'd be accessible for a lay audience without it being dumbed down. A tall order. So normally, when we make theatre, we employ actors to impersonate people like scientists. Here's director Katie Mitchell, a mainstay of Britain's National Theatre. But there's something about the complexity of this subject matter, that it seemed better to address it by getting the scientists themselves to actually stand up and talk about it. And then we would support that talk with theatrical means like video, animation, lighting and music. Mitchell set 10 billion in a rough replica of Stephen Emmett's real-life office. There's his laptop, lots of books, a plant, and a whiteboard. Emmett performs his thought experiment by looking at various global systems and seeing how they all connect and how humans have affected them. Water, land, energy, and climate. His conclusion is that we've already exceeded the so-called carrying capacity of Earth, the maximum human population that the planet can sustain indefinitely without those support systems breaking down. It's a kind of big-picture synthesis that Emmett says doesn't happen very often, even in the academic community. You go to one conference, it's all about water. You go to another one, it's all about the global carbon cycle. You go to another one, it's about terrestrial ecosystems. Emmett says that narrow gaze is matched by the way the news media talks about the environment, not as a whole complex system, but bit by bit, as discrete pieces of news occur. You know, something typically like, I don't know, ocelots are not breeding as much this year. I always imagine someone saying, Doris, ocelots are not breeding today. What do you think about that? I mean, I know it's what you meant to make of that. You can't make a bigger sense of a picture about ecosystem function, about ecosystem loss, about degradation of the entire global food chain in, in, with those sorts of pictures. But the changes required of humans to fix things are of a scale so enormous that, Emmett says, many of us prefer not to think about the problem at all. A very large proportion of us have got our head in the sand, whether it's governments, individuals, businesses. Presenting the whole problem on stage in just an hour is an effective means of dragging a head out of the sand. In a theatre, it's not that easy to stop and put your fingers in the ears and say, la, 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 this isn't happening. But in terms of making a significant impact, well, you've got to get people in the door. And Stephen Emmett's audience for £10 has been small. Producers say the theatre was full for most of the short London run, but it doesn't hold that many people. 88 people. (laughs) But the reviews have been good, and Emmett says people who've seen the show have later got in touch, telling him that it made a lasting impression. The 10 billion experiment has now been staged in London and in France, but Emmett knows digital distribution is the only way to reach vast numbers of people. That's why he's hoping he might get a chance to take it to one of the most influential 21st century stages, a TED Talk. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant, London.
0: We're going to tell you more about the so called floating gold that an eight year old boy found on a beach in England. He spotted it in Bournemouth, a resort on the south coast of England, and that's the answer to our geo quiz. As for what floating gold is, let's turn to Christopher Kemp for that answer. He wrote the book about it. It's called Floating Gold The Natural History of Ambergris.
10: Well, it's basically a type of um, sperm whale poop. And lots of people seem to think that it's vomit, but all of the more recent scientific evidence would indicate that most likely it comes out the the other end instead.
0: Okay, and so either way it's called ambergris?
10: Yeah, and in a nutshell, just really briefly, sperm whales live almost entirely on a diet of squid, and there are certain parts of that of that squid that are indigestible to the whale. And so in very few cases uh, it's estimated that about 1% of sperm whales the squid beaks make it through the four stomach chambers into the small intestine where they start to really chafe that delicate, sensitive gut lining. And in those cases, the whale secretes this very cholesterol-rich substance to bind up the squid beaks in a kind of unpleasant slurry. And that is the substance That becomes ambergris after it is expelled by the whale at sea.
0: What are the the lumps good for? Uh, I mean, why it's said that that what Charlie found on this beach is a kind of floating gold worth a lot of money, possibly upwards of fifty thousand dollars. How come it's worth so much?
10: Well, it requires uh, some really unusual conditions, and uh, and there are only about uh, an estimated three hundred and fifty thousand sperm whales alive today, and only one percent of them produce ambergris. Once it's produced and floated through these enormous oceanic currents and arrives at a beach somewhere, you actually have to find it too. So it's just kind of a very enigmatic substance. The likelihood of you finding it is extremely slim.
0: How marketable is this?
10: It's used mainly uh, as a component in very high-end perfumes. The, the very best ambergris is used, so it's it's those grades that have floated for Years or decades, and become these little white waxy pebbles, basically, what the perfumer will do is grind up the ambergris and dissolve it in alcohol
0: and one would not think that this unpleasant slurry as you called it would make a really nice perfume
10: it's true you know the natural world is a is a strange place, and there's lots <laughs> of really unusual uh, kind of counterintuitive things that go into perfumes, but One of the things that I find most interesting about ambergris is that every piece smells different because it's been through its own unique journey. But to me, it's definitely a bit dungy. You know, it smells a bit like, uh, smells a bit like an old cow pat or something. And, uh, an old what? (laughs) An old cow pie. You know, one that's been kind of baked by the sun and it's got, it smells kind of like dung, but it's also kind of got, uh, grassy, uh, odor tones to it and, uh, kind of hints of tobacco and polished wood and old churches and all those kind of strong, musky, kind of animalic tones to it.
0: Christopher, Um, in another life, I think you'd make a good (laughs) sommelier.
10: Well, who knows?
0: (laughs) Who knows? By the way, were you ever inspired by Moby Dick?
10: Yeah, there's a scene where Stubb, the first mate, manages to convince uh, a whaling ship that passes by and it's towing a couple of pretty decomposed whale carcasses and Stubb convinces them that if they continue to do that, then the gases from the carcasses will probably kill them. And so they unhitch the carcasses and let them float away in the ocean. And then Stubb jumps on top of one of them and grabs a shovel and starts digging into the whale to look for ambergris. And uh, he's actually successful. He finds some. And uh, Melville describes it as cheesy lumps like a rich loam
0: and that was inspirational to you
10: sure yeah it was so kind of otherworldly to imagine that scene and, and that scene was probably an, an everyday scene during the whaling era so it's just uh, such an odd unusual substance that has driven men and women to do some of the strangest things you can imagine
0: Gosh. Christopher Kemp, author of the newly published book Floating Gold, A Natural and Unnatural History of Ambergris. Really fascinating stuff. Thanks very much. We've got a photo of a smiling eight-year-old Charlie Naismith holding his piece of floating gold. That and a lot more good stuff today at theworld.org. This is PRI.
3: The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the investment firm of Raymond James, wealth management, bank, and capital markets. Details on finding a local advisor at lifewellplanned.com.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. You wouldn't think that India and McDonald's would be a great combination. A lot of people in India are Hindus and don't eat beef, and McDonald's built an empire on its burgers. Well, that helps explain why McDonald's is trying something new in India. The company says that next year it's going to be opening its first vegetarian-only restaurants near religious shrines in India. Sarah Senator is an analyst at the equity research firm Sanford Bernstein & Company, and she says that McDonald's has been reinventing its brand in India.
12: You certainly have seen McDonald's offering more uh, locally relevant foods in places like India, you know, where it doesn't serve beef, it tends to serve uh, a maha mack, which is chicken or or lamb, or places like China where you have um, offerings, whether it's a dough sticks at breakfast or things like that, that would appeal to local palates. So I think this is more of an evolution rather than a, a sharp change in their trajectory.
0: Okay. So you say in evolution, because they've already been serving things like Maharaja Mac, which is a chicken patty. Uh, There's a fried spicy potato patty known as uh, a makaloo tiki burger. Tika, right. Tika, yeah. Is this the the kind of thing, though, the McDonald's will have to serve up in larger numbers to truly crack the Indian market?
12: Yeah, I think emerging markets require different menus and different operating models. Yum Brands, which is the uh, company that owns Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut in the U.S. really dominates the emerging markets with the KFC business. And to some less extent, Pizza Hut is known for tailoring both its menu, so offering things like kanji in China, and also its uh, operating model. So, you know, it does breakfast in the developing markets with KFC, has a tea time offering in all of its brands in China, and it's renowned for doing that and for uh, dominating the emerging markets as a result.
0: Okay, and the kanji being a kind of, it's a sort of a Chinese breakfast, kind of a salty porridge type meal right. that you're saying exactly. that yeah that's served there. So is there a possibility, do you think, that what goes in China or what goes in India might then be brought back here to America? In other words, can you imagine McDonald's bringing vegetarian-only outlets here to the U.S.?
12: that we'll see vegetarian-only outlets, uh, but I do think, you know, we have certainly seen the global quick service, uh, limited service restaurants innovate in other markets and bring that to the United States. So, uh, you know, an example would be their McCafe beverage line, which actually came from New Zealand. We do see a lot of cross-market pollination from McDonald's.
0: McDonald's, apparently in St. Paul, Minnesota, there's a McDonald's franchise that's reaching out to the Hmong community by advertising on billboards in the Hmong language of Southeast Asia. There are some Hmong speakers who say though, the McDonald's actually botched the translation and is kind of mashing words together and sounding not very colloquial. Assuming those grammar problems are eventually ironed out, is this the kind of thing that you think will help McDonald's back here in the U.S. with uh, non-English speakers?
12: Yeah, and that is certainly something that you see. I mean, the most obvious example would be marketing to Hispanic consumers. I mean, you see a lot of Spanish language marketing go on, not just by McDonald's, but by uh, uh, many of their competitors and even some of the full service restaurants.
0: uh, But but we're talking about a much smaller population. I mean, significant population in St. Paul of, of Hmong, but much smaller than you would think Latino in the United States.
12: Uh, Mong is never going to be a national marketing campaign for them. But for the franchisees who are operating in an area where there is a an enclave, an ethnic enclave, it makes perfect sense to have uh, a different language marketing strategy.
0: Okay, thank you. Sarah Senator, Senior Analyst at Sanford Bernstein & Company. She spoke with us about the recent efforts by McDonald's to expand its market share globally. Nice to talk to you, Sarah. Thank you. Finally today, the Mexican state of Sinaloa is home to the country's most wanted drug lord. El Chapo Guzman heads the much-feared Sinaloa cartel. Drug trafficking has long dominated life in the state. It's even spawned a musical style known as narco-corridos. Those are ballads that glorify drug dealers and their deeds. For our global hit today, we meet a rapper from the state capital, Culiacán, who goes against the grain. Reporter Miles Este has his profile.
13: MC Enfermo, or El Sick, wraps behind the glass in an adapted closet with a mic stand that serves as his recording booth. The studio is actually the side room of a house in a dusty suburb of Culiacán. It belongs to Enfermo's friend and producer, DJ
8: Pacho. <laughs>
13: Detained by the narcos, where lead fills the air, and the danger's high all the time, says the
8: chorus. <laughs>
13: MC Enfermo, whose real name is Manuel Mason, is energized whenever he speaks whether it's about music, politics, or the ongoing violence.
3: We write about it because we need to say that our brothers are dying in the drug trade, dying from the bullets. The gangsters aren't just ending people's lives,
13: they're killing their souls, too. MC Enfermo has watched dozens of his own friends get recruited by the cartels. One close friend and fellow rapper was killed just last year. In fact, He's tired of people thinking that Culiacán's youth are just fodder for the drug
3: war. I think they see Culiacán like an AK-47 and we're the bullets. They think the state is just full of problems and conflicts. But within the same society, people also work honestly and they sweat to make a buck.
8: Narcos y pistolas, violencia, asesinato por dinero, se hacen demasiadas cosas, calles peligrosas, banquetas llenas de hogares destruidos, luchando mujeres solas, es una realidad impunidad, si tu nivel económico es bajo lo social, olvídate de
13: todo. enfermos producer. Works with several performers in Culiacán's emerging rap scene. He says enfermo and friends, whose lyrics document and question life around them exemplify the style of conscious rap he sees around Culiacán.
9: Most of them talk about life, about all that's going on here, and, well, who they are amongst all this. They don't talk about money, not like how a lot of rappers boast about money and guns. Here, no. Here, rap's focus is on daily life and what
13: people
4: are doing to make it.
13: Words are both valuable and dangerous weapons in Mexico. NGOs say that eight journalists have been killed directly for their coverage of the drug war this year, and several media outlets have been attacked across the country. Many singers who've defied the narcos have been killed as well. Enfermo knows there are certain things he just can't say, but he also thinks it's important for people, especially young people, to hear that not everyone admires the drug culture.
3: You enter that life and you never come back. It's really hard to get out from that, you know? For us, we're not after that life because we don't want to end up six feet under. That's it, period.
13: For the world, this is Miles Esten in Culiacan, Mexico.
0: That's our program today. Thanks for listening from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH. I'm Lisa Mullins.
3: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems, online at ritaallen.org, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.